Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and tonight we're jumping right back into the frying pan with the Six Day War. This is one of the bloodiest wars in recent Middle Eastern history, and it's an object lesson of how an outnumbered state can meet the combined offenses of multiple aggressors. In tonight's show, Israel will deploy aggression, tricks, ruses, and tactical superiority to offset the combined might of multiple Arab aggressors. It's going to be a great ride, and I appreciate you hopping on board. I should tell you that this is part three of a three-part series. You can find parts one and two in the immediately preceding podcast. But if you want to jump right into the middle of the story, here's your chance. However, before we can do anything, I need to thank Noah from Denmark for buying us around. If you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the Make a Donation button. But now we're going to jump right back into the bloody wars of Israel's modern military history and the Six-Day War. It's a war... Most of you should know about it should be in every textbook, but for many of you, this will be the first time you've heard anything about it, the Six-Day War. Now, if you remember from last month's show, we ended in 1957 when Israel was forced by the United Nations and American pressure to pull back from the amazing territorial gains she had won in the Sinai Peninsula. Colonel Nasser was still reigning in Egypt, licking his wounds and openly calling for the destruction of the Jewish state. His propaganda machine ceaselessly broadcasts incitements to the Arab world like a pissed-off middle-aged woman berating her lackluster husband. When are you going to get off the couch and do something about these Zionist colonizers of our Arab brothers? The propaganda repeated endlessly. And Nasser's propaganda had the desired effect. The Arab world was ready for another confrontation with what they called a second crusader state, the state of Israel. This change in outlook didn't happen overnight. After 1956, the Arab civilization was in a state of uproar. Unlooked for coups happened overnight. The Soviet Union began bankrolling modern military rearmament for many Islamic nations. Haim Herzog provides a great summary of the time between wars this way, quote, By 1957, a series of almost continuous upheavals in the Arab world began. In 1958, King Faisal of Iraq was deposed and brutally assassinated together with members of his family. The bodies were dragged through the streets by a jubilant crowd, a ticker tape parade for Satan. General Nuri Saeed, a veteran Iraqi statesman, disguised himself as a woman, but was found and literally torn apart by the rampaging mob. The enraged citizens literally sprinkled his blood across their faces as they waved his body parts as a grisly symbol of their revolt. The Soviet Union promptly bankrolled a weak revolutionary regime in Iraq and thereby gained an important foothold in the Middle East. As a result, civil war broke out in Lebanon and the United States landed a force of Marines to stabilize the situation there while the British Army moved into Jordan to bolster King Hussein's regime. In February of 1958, Egypt and Syria had united to establish the United Arab Republic with two regions. Syria thereby became the northern center for Nasser's anti-Israeli activities. In September 1960, Nasser's agents assassinated the Jordanian Prime Minister, blowing him up with a bomb while he was looking over TPS reports in his office. Then, in October 1961, the Syrians revolted against the Egyptians and reverted back to an independent nation. During this time, the Syrians shelled Israeli settlements from the Golan Heights, laid mines along the border, and conducted a minor war with Israel along the frontier. Reprisals raged back and forth across the border. The violence fed on itself like a never-ending circle. It just went on ceaselessly." In 1964, various Arab governments met in Cairo in order to establish the Palestine Liberation Organization known by its acronym PLO. Over $1 billion was pledged to the Palestinian movement, which was formally established in 1965. The organization's founding documents explicitly called for the destruction of the State of Israel. The Syrian government continued to provide aid and backing 
to the PLO. Meanwhile, Syria and Lebanon broke ground on a canal which aimed to divert the waters of the Hasbani and Benias rivers in Syria into the river Yarmouk in Jordan, thereby depriving Israel of two-thirds of the water in the Jordan Valley. They're going to take a ton of water from the Israelis, water the Israelis desperately need. So the Israelis declared this action a declaration of war by the two Arab nations and constantly hampered construction through artillery assaults and violent military incursions to stop work on the canal. Now keep in mind, Arab guerrillas are regularly slipping into Israeli territory and engaging in sabotage and murder. Now what this means on the ground is Israeli artillery peppered Arab construction crews with shrapnel while they attempted to move dirt with excavators. The same day, an Arab guerrilla might plant a bomb on a busy street, which splashed shrapnel on grandma and five-year-olds as they waited at a crowded bus stop. Now, this kind of low-level violence is hard for many of us to imagine. We all see kids across the Western world waiting for buses to take them to school, sometimes with their mothers hovering over them like hens with their chicks. Now, imagine every time you see this ubiquitous scene, there's a credible threat that those kids waiting at the crowded bus stop will have their cherubic faces imploded with flying chunks of jagged metal moving at 300 miles per hour. Imagine seeing the unforgettable results of such an attack on the news every few days, and you begin to feel trapped in your own country. You never really feel secure. You feel the wild red vines of hatred choke the tender white flower of peace. Now, the slow war of attrition had gone on for years when the final confrontation came in April 1967. It began with Syria on the northeast Israeli border. The Syrians began shelling Jewish farmers and villages in the demilitarized zones in the border areas between the two countries. On April 7th, unusually, Heavy fire was directed against Israeli villagers, and Israel responded by sending aircraft spurting death against the Syrian artillery positions. As the Israelis attacked, the Syrian Air Force was scrambled and attempted to intercept the Israeli aircraft. A modern historian details what happened next. Quote, In a series of dogfights, six Syrian aircraft were shot down. The Israelis then issued a stern warning to the Syrian government, noting that artillery strikes and infiltrations would no longer be tolerated, and the Israeli reaction would physically endanger the very existence of the regime in Damascus. Fearful of an Israeli attack, the Syrians reached out to the Egyptians for aid. They also reached out to the Soviet Union. Russian intelligence investigated the matter and concluded the Israelis were massing more than 11 brigades on the Syrian border. It was actually more like 11 companies. Still, for the Russians, it looked as if war between Israel and Syria was imminent, end quote. And Nasser believed war was imminent, too. If the Israelis had really concentrated tens of thousands of their best units in the north, it was his chance to strike from the south. Accordingly, on May 17th, he began to move hundreds of thousands of troops to Israel's southwestern border. In response to Nasser's demand that the U.N. forces along the border with Israel withdraw, the U.N. promptly did withdraw, leaving Israel's southern border wide open to Nasser's massive force. There's the United Nations for you. They had a camp between Egypt and Israel for more than a decade, sucking millions of dollars from the United Nations. And then, when the time came to bravely stop naked aggression, they ran away. Once again, I'm reminded of Monty Python. When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and no. said, No! brave Sir Robin turned about I didn't! He chickened out, bravely taking I never did! A very brave retreat. Oh, lies! Now hysteria ran through the Arab world like a rivering high school rumor. One after another, the various states of the Arab world sent forth their armies to drive the Jewish unbelievers into the sea. The whole world held its breath. Kuwait and Algeria sent contingents to join the battle. In the end, almost 250,000 troops replete with advanced Soviet bloc weapons were amassed along Israel's border. Lebanon sent 12,000. Syria amassed 50,000, as did Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Iraq sent 70,000. The whole Arab civilization was concentrating on the borders of Israel, but they weren't all there yet. Israel, like a second Napoleon, had to strike hard and strike first before her enemies could consolidate their power against her. Before everything was over, more than 500,000 Arab troops moved to invade and wipe the Jewish state off the face of the planet. 
a second holocaust. Israel was hopelessly outnumbered. Her flummoxed generals promptly issued mobilization orders for the entire nation. More than 250,000 men and women were mobilized to meet the Arab threat. The Israelis had 800 tanks. The Arabs had 2,500. The Israelis had about 300 combat aircraft. The Arabs had almost 1,000. But numbers aren't everything. No matter how much our unreflecting politicians in the West think they are, and the Israelis had two important things working in their favor. First, they were totally unified. The Arabs were not. They were attacking in divided groups. Second, the Israelis were better trained and more highly motivated. The Israelis stressed flexibility and initiative in the field. The Egyptians emphasized rote obedience to superiors. Plus, if the Israelis lost the war, they would lose their nation. They would lose the hope of a thousand years. They would be letting down every Jew that ever died for his faith in a central European pogrom. Every Jew who rose up in Warsaw, every Jew who gave his life for his people and for Judaism. The land had always been a significant, tangible part of the religion. For thousands of years, Jews had dreamed of having their nation restored in the land of their patriarchs. Now, all those hopes and all that suffering would hang on just a few days. Less than a week to ensure the hopes and dreams of millions of Jews. Less than a week to ensure the countless treasure and millions of martyrs had their work and their blood avenged. Six days to decide the fate of a nation and, to a lesser degree, a religion. A six-day war. As the entire Arab world worked to annihilate Israel, the rest of the world looked on in horror. Western governments worked overtime to talk, and then talk some more. And they had some meetings, and then they took a break for lunch, and oh, after that they talked some more. And all the while, the news tightened around the Israeli people, while thousands of artillery units zeroed in. On individual Israeli citizens, the politicians of the West held endless meetings. The Arab forces were ready to strike. And the Israeli Minister of Defense, the one-eyed General Dayan, made it clear to the politicians that every day of delay in launching a preemptive strike against Egypt would ipso facto mean heavier casualties for the Israeli forces. Still, many of the Israeli politicians believed Nasser was just massing his troops to threaten them. They did not think he would actually attack. But then Nasser, like a loudmouth, tipped his hand. Speaking to the Egyptian parliament, he openly declared, The problem presently before the Arab countries is not whether Israeli ports will be blockaded or not, but how to totally exterminate the state of Israel for all time! Sounds a lot like genocide to me. And it did to Israeli leaders too. But the Israelis had a problem. And the problem was Israel was not a rich nation at the time, and war is a rich man's game. In 1964, Israeli leaders told the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, any war that the Jewish state waged would have to end in four days. Why? Because they couldn't afford a longer war. By the end of May, General Dayan was screaming to be let off his chain so he could launch a preemptive strike against the forces massing on Israel's border. However, ever mindful of world opinion, Israeli politicians still refused to strike. But the Israelis had a secret card up their sleeves. They had a man, a high-ranking man, inside the Egyptian military, secretly broadcasting the positions of Egypt's entire armed forces. Howard Sacker picks up the story, quote, Israel's intelligence service was uniquely effective. However, the undercover work of espionage is especially dangerous, and many of Israel's informants ended their career dancing at the end of a short rope in front of a tall tree. But there was one informant who was not caught. He was a young Egyptian communications officer who was fanatically anti-Nasserist. He was known only by his codename, Suleiman. From May 17, 1967, Suleiman radioed Israel-coded information on Egyptian troop movements, battle plans, and even the location of anti-aircraft missiles. After the start of the war, he even broadcast full details on Egyptian losses. On the last day of the war, Israeli planes inadvertently bombed Suleiman's radio post. Of all the people who helped Israel during the Six-Day War, no one had done more than Suleiman. In the end, his only reward was death, killed not by the men he betrayed, but by his supposed benefactors. Such is the limitlessly dangerous life of a spy, a forever mercenary, surrounded by enemies with a large check to cash. But how can you get to the bank when you're behind enemy lines? And so Suleiman died like countless spies from countless countries around the world. But his intelligence was invaluable for Israel's war effort. End quote. 
By June 1st, Israel's political leaders decided diplomacy would not stop the coming storm of death. War was inevitable. They decided to strike. The attack came on June 5th at 7.10 a.m. The entire world looked on. Millions of Jews held their breaths. Millions more were facing that old sad truth. Victory or death, conquer or die. On June 5th, the attack order was sent out from the operations room in the defense ministry in Tel Aviv. It unleashed one of the most skilled combat air systems in the modern world. Thanks to the priceless intelligence of Suleiman, Israeli commanders had already pinpointed the exact location of virtually all Egyptian planes, even the fake wooden ones, such as the price of one traitor. Such is the price of one spy. But how many of us seriously consider the spies that are smiling at us in the halls of our universities in the West today? Spies kill people. World affairs is a dangerous game. And Suleiman's intelligence was about to immobilize the cream of Egypt's combat capabilities. Israel had rehearsed everything multiple times before the actual strike itself. Everything worked like clockwork, like it was just another training exercise. And again, Howard Sacker provides an excellent overview in his History of Israel, so I'll just quote him, quote, The first Israeli planes took off at staggered intervals for Egypt's key air bases in the Sinai Peninsula, the area near the Suez Canal and the Nile Valley. The two engine light bombers were assigned the farthest target, Luxor on the Nile, almost twice the distance to Cairo. The single-engine mirages headed for the nearest fields at El Arish and others in the Sinai. All were scheduled to arrive over their target at the identical moment, 7.45 a.m. The pilots were ordered first to destroy the Egyptian bombers and interceptors, then to devastate the air bases themselves. From the ground, the coordinated aircraft resembled a force of nature, more than a design sprung from man's mind. They glided in aerial unity like a flock of ducks, like it were something innate in the machines themselves that coordinated them in mobile triangles of death. Taking off over the Mediterranean, the planes hooked back over Egypt at ground level to avoid enemy radar. Reaching their 11 separate targets at the appointed time, the Israelis climbed high, then dived 200 feet as they proceeded to annihilate the million-dollar bombers and MiGs that were exposed like strippers on the runways. The Israelis made four passes over their targets, consuming their allotted seven minutes to destroy the enemy planes, then to rocket-bomb the Egyptian fields. Ten minutes after the first attack wave came the second, and ten minutes after that, the third, arriving just as regularly as the moon in the night. As the Israelis streaked for home, they managed to evade a number of surface-to-air missiles that climbed up after them. In 170 minutes, Israel's pilots had smashed Egypt's best-equipped air bases and had turned 300 of Nasser's 340 combat planes into flaming wrecks. Another 20 Egyptian planes were shot down in the air. End quote. The Israeli pilots were so successful that when they were debriefed, their own military commanders had trouble believing their own pilots' reports of the overwhelming destruction they had wreaked on the Egyptians. One man pinched himself. They had been training so long, he thought he might be dreaming. The commander of the Israeli Air Force, Major General Mordecai Hod, would later say, Never in my wildest dreams would I have thought this kind of record possible. I reckoned on at least half a day to complete the job, maybe even a whole day and a night. But Hod's wildest dreams had come true. The Egyptian Air Force, the largest and best equipped in the Middle East, was a broken heap of burning wreckage. What is money without the talent to command it? What is military power without the minds and the discipline to wield it? It is just dust in the wind. It is chafe. It is nothing. Vanity, like an evil woman. It looks good during the engagement, but the marriage is a nightmare. It was on the first day after their spectacular success against the Egyptians that the Israeli Air Force turned its eagle-eyed attention to the Syrians, Iraqis, and Jordanians. It was their turn to taste the bitter pill of war. In the course of the ensuing Israeli air attacks, the entire Jordanian Air Force was destroyed as well as 50 Syrian MiGs, two-thirds of the Syrian combat air force. By the time darkness crept over the Holy Land, Israel had destroyed 416 planes, 393 of them on the ground, a fortune pissed away in a day. 
How many starving infants, their dry mouths pathetically gaping for baby formula, might have had food? How many hungry children sat in patched, donated tents, their bellies distending so that Syria and Egypt might have a mighty air force? Waste. Endless, ceaseless waste. Friends, can't you see the need for peace? Don't you see what Christ meant when he said, turn the other cheek? Now, I'm not a pacifist. There is a time for war, and there is a time for peace. But for my part, I will always do what I can for peace. But that same morning, on June 5th, the Jewish state turned its laser-like attention to the Egyptian ground forces in the south, denuded of their air cover, as exposed as a man on the day of judgment before the white throne of God. For the next four days, the Israeli Air Force, like a second Achilles, roamed through the skies above Sinai, wiping entire convoys of Egyptian vehicles off the face of the planet. Meanwhile, at 8.15 a.m., the Israeli ground forces attacked in three armored thrusts. The first Arab line of defense cracked like an eggshell. The Israelis knew the locations of all the mines, and so they danced through the minefield the way you or I routinely commute to work just another day. In the north, an armored brigade advanced on Rafah, the gateway to the Gaza Strip. Lieutenant Colonel Pinko Harrell led an armored column in the advance. This is how he described the assault. Quote, I received an order to go at top speed to Rafah. This was what I was waiting for. We charged straight ahead into the enemy position, crashing through their lines with main guns and machine guns blazing, lasering ordnance into the Egyptian positions. To our right were some friendly tanks engaged in a sharp battle with dug-in Egyptian tanks. And after we reached the high ground, we stopped and caught our breath. I looked below us and saw dozens of enemy tanks engulfed in flames, their crews running like angry chickens in shock and horror. But we pressed on. A few miles down the road, the entire front exploded in fire. Tanks, anti-tank guns, and mortars were hemming a chorus of pain. Our first three tanks got through safely, but the fourth exploded with tongues of bright orange flames. I shouted to continue the race, and my tanks followed me through the curtain of fire, and we made it to the main road. I looked back and chuckled at myself when I saw my 17 tanks following me in a column like I was a mama duck. Then we reached Jarati and saw the Arab defenses were heavy. There was no hope to just crash through without combat. I ordered my tanks to traverse right and left while firing with all weapons. It worked. The Egyptians were taken by surprise and they didn't even fire back. I was amazed at what we had accomplished. End quote. Another eyewitness remembers the armored thrust this way. Quote, no sooner had we passed the outer defenses when a tank gun fired at me, the round missing me by inches. I actually felt it wind past me, at least I thought I did. It reminded me of the angel of death blowing through Egypt. The tank following me quickly sighted on the enemy and destroyed it, but then the entire front exploded in a riot of noise. All at once, dozens of dug-in tanks, anti-tank guns, artillery and mortars exploded into action, filling the skies with an overwhelming suffocating, acrid stench slithering up your nostrils, and it burned your throat. It was terrifying. Here and there, tanks were blazing. Some of the enemies, some of them ours, but we charged on deep into the enemy positions, end quote. Another soldier remembers how combat made him value the lives of his comrades more than his own. You ask me if life became cheap. On the contrary, the lives of others those close to me became precious. It was my own life that seemed unimportant somehow. That was one of the things that really surprised me about this. You ask if I discovered things in myself that weren't there previously. Yes, I really think that there were some instances where I behaved where I endangered myself too much. You found that the fields became precious to you, that the lives of all the people you know, of all the Jews living in this country, they became precious to you. You suddenly felt that there was something in all of this you were doing. You know, the, the first few days after I got back, I kept talking about it all the time, about how I'd found out for myself that all these things that I once thought were just slogans, things like, it's good to die for your country, and love for one's homeland, they really existed. I think war is the most extreme example of what brings men to realize this, end quote. Now, when Rafa fell, the road to El Arish, the administrative capital of Sinai, was wide open. The Israeli armor pushed six miles deeper into Sinai, destroying Egyptian strong points along the way, and at midnight on June 6, 
Israeli armor reached El Arish and immediately began to attack the fortress. At first, Egyptian resistance was strong. They gave as good as they got, but the Israeli air force fell on the Egyptian tanks from above, and it was a massacre. Under the combined assaults of Israeli armor and air attack, Egyptian resistance evaporated or was liquidated. Then Dayan ordered the capture of Gaza. A single brigade broke off from the main force in Sinai and attacked the Gaza Strip from behind. The entire Palestinian defenses were oriented towards the frontier with Israel, not the supply line back to Egypt. This is precisely where the Israeli tanks attacked, strolling down the same roads that the Palestinian supplies had come in on. Resistance was crushed by June 7th. An Israeli soldier named Asher describes what happens to you when you come across dead friends and family on a battlefield. Quote, in front of us there was another unit with its casualties and dead. I went up and asked if they needed any help. Hey, you know Yossi, don't you? There he is over there. This is Baruch, and there's Yuri, and Ehud, and Haim, and Moshe, the other doctors said. They were all wrapped up in blankets, naked and burned, their bodies blackened and crusted over like bark on American barbecue. So long as you don't know the dead personally, you can deal with them calmly as doctors do. But when you know these boys, when you've worked with them for a whole year, when you've attended this one's wedding, and you remember how this one had a love affair and went with that girl... And when you've shared so many common experiences and then you see them lying like that, all wrapped up in blankets, laid out on the floor like cordwood, then as well as the terrible anguish, you have the feeling that your mind just goes blank. You can't think or feel anything. Actually, that's how everyone felt, just blank and emptiness, end quote. Now, at the same time as the attack I just described in the north of the Sinai Peninsula was taking place, Ariel Sharon and another armored brigade, together with an undersized infantry division, struck towards the major Arab fortification in Sinai, Abu Agela. The main fortress was called Um Katav. It was a Rubik's Cube of death, a fortified network of armor-stopping pain. The Israelis attacked at night, which deprived them of air cover. Sharon's plan for taking the death complex was extraordinarily complicated, requiring the synchronization of half a dozen individual assignments in darkness over a 20-square-mile area. A modern historian describes the assault this way, quote, the attack began at dusk on June 5th with a long, painful infantry march behind Um Katov through the foot-sucking and stumble-inducing sand. At the same time, a battalion of paratroops was lifted by helicopters to another point in the desert three miles behind the fortifications. The infantry appeared at the Egyptian flanks just as darkness fell, running along the lip of the trench works. They cut down the Egyptian defenders with their automatic weapons, giving each Arab a double tap to ensure they were immobilized. Their bodies quivered and trembled like the floor of a bass-thumping rap concert as each round slammed into their lifeless bodies. The helicopter-borne troops now attacked the Egyptian artillery batteries from the rear. After several minutes of close-quarter combat, a massive Israeli artillery barrage descended on the Egyptian positions, end quote. Colonel Danny Matt, an Israeli paratrooper commander, details his men's role in the night attack like this, quote, The going in, the soft sand, was much slower than we expected, and the men tired very rapidly, but their officers encouraged them. Suddenly the sky lit up with hundreds of illumination shells, followed by the crash of mortars as they rained down on our approach route. However, the enemy was firing blind and hadn't actually seen us. They'd only heard the helicopters that dropped us off. Navigation was difficult. The artillery guns themselves guided us like a magnet because each time they fired, they gave off light in the pitch blackness. Soon after midnight, we reached the outer perimeter of the Egyptian stronghold. There was no minefields or barbed wire protecting the heavy guns. I couldn't believe it. So we just stormed straight in. The gun crews were throwing away their shells, running away in panic, trying to escape our firing. Ammunition bunkers exploded into fiery infernos. The noise became overwhelming. It hurt your ears, but it also hurt deep in your head. 
The smoke and dust was suffocating. It actually clogged your lungs. Then a convoy fully laden with ammunition came driving right into the battle zone, their drivers ignoring the battle raging all around them. And within seconds, they were transformed into a blazing inferno. By now, we had almost completed our mission. Searchlights were used after hand-to-hand fighting had cleared a pathway to the rear of the fortification, permitting additional Israeli infantry and tanks to ventilate the trenches. The fighting was heavy, but the entire attack went with machine-like precision. By 3 a.m. on June 6, Umm Katov, the strongest fortification on the peninsula, was in Israeli hands. All that remained was the destruction of the surviving tanks, and that took three hours. Israeli armor moved through Umm Katov to encircle enemy pockets of armor. The operations became a classic of tactics, studied in military academies around the world. And how many podcasts had the guts to tell you about it? You know the answer. And with the fall of Rafa and Abu Agela, the Sinai Peninsula lay wide open to Israeli forces. Thus, by the end of the second day of war, after 35 hours of uninterrupted battle, the first and most difficult phase of the Israeli operational plan had been completed. Egyptian fortifications were crushed or bypassed. Sinai was wide open for easy conquest, and the roads to the west and the south were clear. The armor and infantry made easy time down those roads, reconquering the land the United Nations had tongued away from the Israelis a few years before. At the same time, in the northeast frontier with Syria, the Syrians fiddled away June 5th by shelling Israeli border settlements for hours. They conquered nothing. They destroyed little. They pissed away the initiative. On June 6th, a Syrian infantry and armored company launched two attacks on a Jewish town and community farm. These were repulsed by Israeli tanks and air units. Already on day two, we see Israeli air supremacy proving decisive on all fronts. What was worse is the Egyptians straight up lied to their comrades. On June 5th, they told the other Arab states that Egyptian mechanized columns were driving on Tel Aviv and that the Egyptian Air Force had knocked out 75% of Israel's planes. It was a complete lie, but their fellow Arabs believed it and joined the short race into disaster. Long-range Jordanian artillery bombarded the outskirts of Tel Aviv. They accomplished little. Then the Jordanians moved towards the Jewish section of Jerusalem and its 190,000 Jewish inhabitants. The Israeli leadership bit their tongues when they saw the move. There was no way Jordan could be allowed to conquer the Jewish sections of the city. The fighting started on day one, June 5th. Jordanian shells began hitting populated areas, slicing through civilian bodies like a sharp knife through soft cheese. Within a few hours, 250 Israeli civilians were wounded and 20 were killed, but the Israelis held without retaliation because they did not want to cause a major battle on the Eastern Front while they were still destroying Egyptian resistance in the Sinai. Dayan told the commanders of the Jerusalem Front to grit your teeth and don't ask for more troops. At 1 p.m., the Jordanians entered the demilitarized zone around Israeli Jerusalem and occupied high ground that dominated the densely inhabited neighborhoods of Israeli parts of the city. Then the Jordanian army simply stopped. It was a terrible mistake. Any military man of any rank listening to this, remember what Forrest said, strike fast and strike hard and keep striking. Most of you real military men have seen real fights. I'm talking about fights between individuals. In a real fight, The victor is often the man who doesn't give up, who keeps striking beyond all endurance until his enemy is knocked out. That's the way to conduct war, and there is no other way. Already on the night of June 5th, world leaders were tripping over themselves to stop the violence threatening to burn the Middle East down. The Soviet Union called for all forces to withdraw from conquered territory, which of course would only benefit the Arab nations because they were the ones who were hemorrhaging massive amounts of territory. The United States simply called for a ceasefire. By June 6, there was little pressure on the combatants to stop fighting and the war went on. On the evening of the 6th, the Israelis learned the Egyptians were pulling back to their secondary defense lines. This was the Jewish state's chance. If they could cut off the retreating units, they would crush the cream of the Egyptian army. Accordingly, two major columns of Israelis pushed deep into the Sinai. One attacked in the north, while the other attacked in the south towards the famous Mitla Pass we've talked about many times. The same strategic passage through the mountains where so much bloody fighting had taken place during the previous Sinai conflicts. The two columns attacked simultaneously. 
A modern historian takes up the story, quote, In the ensuing tank battles on this flat terrain, the highly skilled Israeli tankers annihilated their opponents. By nightfall of June 7th, the Israeli vanguard had reached its objectives in the north. It had overrun Rumani on the coastal road and was now just 10 miles away from the canal. In the center, it held the road just 30 miles away from the center of the canal, and in the south, the Israelis blocked the passageway through Mitla, cutting off the Egyptian line of retreat. Thousands of Egyptians were now trapped behind enemy lines. Three Israeli divisions were moving in for the kill. The advanced armor units held the key mountain passes. Sharon was driving the fleeing Egyptians into the trap. His column moved out at dawn, inflicting a fearful death toll on the retreating Egyptian armor. In one encounter alone, two Egyptian regiments, 50 tanks and 300 vehicles were utterly destroyed. At the same time, Egyptian mechanized forces attempted to break through the Israeli blocking force in their rear in the center. Many Egyptians were liquidated in the ensuing battle. Meanwhile, a continuous stream of Egyptian troops and priceless vehicles poured from the rest of Sinai toward the waiting Israeli forces at the southern Mitla mountain pass. They had no clue that the pass was blocked. As the enemy converged from all directions, Israeli planes strafed and bombed them mercilessly, dealing death just as easily as moneyed interests mislead citizens during an election year. Then the Israelis unleashed an armored brigade on the already battle-worn Egyptians. It was a slaughter, more akin to a butcher shop than a battle. In the end, more than 800 Egyptian tanks were knocked out or captured. It was arguably one of the greatest Jewish military victories in literally 2,000 years. On June 7th, the Egyptian strong point at Sharm es-Sheikh fell to the Jewish state. The Egyptians fled even before the Israelis arrived. All the Jewish soldiers had to do was walk in and raise the flag of the Star of David. On June 8th, Israeli forces from the south reached Ras Sudur, just a few miles below the southern mouth of the Suez Canal. Behind them lay approximately 325 miles of easy conquest in just three days. It was a masterpiece of military art, a magnum opus of pain. End quote. At this point, Egyptian resistance was piecemeal and uncoordinated. Here's how one Egyptian remembered his attempt to take out an Israeli tank. Quote, I lay down waiting for a tank, and when it was in range, I fired, but the weapon did not work. The whole area was turning into hell. Another soldier's RPG didn't work, and the tank came at him shooting. He ran at the tank, carrying the RPG, and the tank just squashed him like a bug. They fired machine guns and more soldiers fell. I tried the RPG again, but it still didn't work. I was in total shock to see my group torn to pieces after we had fought so bravely. End quote. In the middle of the Suez Canal itself, the Israelis had taken Al-Gentera. Every Egyptian in Sinai was now a prisoner of the Jewish state if they knew it or not. The victory was a staggering one. Seven Egyptian divisions, totaling more than 100,000 men, equipped with over $2 billion of modern Eastern Bloc weapons, had been completely crushed in less than four days. No troops were left to defend Cairo. It was then, when he had no choice, that Nasser accepted the United Nations agreement for a ceasefire. He had been one of the most belligerent leaders in the Middle East. He had called for the end of the Western intrusion into Middle Eastern affairs. He had said that he would wipe the Jewish state off the map. Now he came slinking to the UN to stop the Israeli juggernaut. It was power that made Nasser talk. It was strength that made him come to the UN seeking assistance hat in hand. Literally a week before he was telling the United Nations to keep their long noses out of Arab affairs. But this is a lesson for all of us. The bully respects strength, not talk, not social workers, not compassion, strength, and nothing else. By the end of June 7th, Egyptian resistance in the Sinai had collapsed. An Egyptian combat soldier explains why it happened. Everyone lost their heads. It was a massacre, a disaster. Israel never would have achieved a quarter of its victory if not for the confusion and the chaos on our own side. According to this Egyptian eyewitness, lack of leadership was the decisive reason for Egypt's total defeat in Sinai. This is how one Israeli soldier described the mopping up in the peninsula after June 7th. Quote, 
We had turned the Sinai into a charnel house, into one big cemetery. People without weapons who raised their hands were shot down despite the orders not to do so. I saw so many instances of murder that I can no longer cry about it, end quote. And so the Sinai was conquered, an endless stream of gaunt POWs lined into Israeli prison camps. So much for the war in the South. Now I'm going to tell you how Israel shared her cultural and technological achievements with Jordan and Syria. Now if you hear someone talk about the West Bank, they're talking about the predominantly Arab area west of the Jordan River that in 1967 was part of the state of Jordan. The West Bank was a major problem for the Israeli military because it allowed Arabic armies to constantly threaten all the population centers of Israel. On June 5th, at the same time as she was attacking Egypt, Israel set out to solve that problem. The first thing the Israelis did was secure the high ground in and around Jerusalem. These actions involved small-scale infantry assaults. Eight Israeli soldiers fell in the initial assaults, and the main Israeli thrust was aimed at the high ground between Jerusalem and the Arabic town of Ramallah, which was situated astride the major north-south highway in the West Bank. You can always see those maps at thebattlecast.com. Now, the Jewish state's armor attacked along six directions to overwhelm the Arab defenders. And the Jordanians knew the Israeli attack would come, and they had turned the approaches into a labyrinth of death, studded with nests of bunkers, trenches, and minefields. The Israeli armor pushed through these defenses with the help of Israel's total air supremacy. They penetrated everywhere. Any mini-fortress was either bypassed or liquidated with modern air power. But the fighting was still horrible. Mines were a particular problem for the Israeli state. A modern historian explains why. Quote, the Israeli 163rd Battalion struck the village of Bidu from the west with combat engineers demolishing the fortified bunkers with shaped charges. The positions were cleared with only one Israeli casualty. The anti-tank ditch that surrounded the position had to be filled before the armor could advance. It took several hours. Aided by searchlights mounted on Sherman tanks to illuminate targets, the infantry assaulted the village and secured it. Meanwhile, the 106th Battalion, along with a company of tanks, attacked a strong Jordanian position under cover of airstrikes. Combat engineers took the lead, but most of their mine-clearing equipment had been sent to Sinai. They groped along as best they could, but casualties began to mount. Colonel Ben Ari describes what happened next. Quote, the Arab mines were both old and new and totally unpredictable. We didn't have equipment to clear them, so dozens of men's legs were lost. End quote. Another lieutenant colonel remembered, quote, With no other choice, the infantry had to attack without tank cover under heavy bombardment. Leaping from stone to stone to try and avoid the mines, the battle was brutal with knives and bayonets, end quote. By the morning of the sixth day, Israeli soldiers had cut off the main highway in the West Bank, secured the high ground near Jerusalem, and were set to press on in the conquest of the entire area. And that's just what they did, as easy as you absent-mindedly take a breath. At the same time, the Israelis were working to capture the entire city of Jerusalem itself. The major offensive came at nightfall on the 5th. At 7.45 p.m., synchronized searchlights activated and focused their beams on Jordanian artillery and machine gun nests. Then the Israelis blasted the illuminated targets one by one. After the artillery peppered the Jordanian positions, then two battalions of paratroops charged, dynamiting the Arab machine gun nests and turning them into many mushroom clouds of blood and concrete-infused ashes. An Israeli soldier describes the fighting like this, quote, It's the enemy who gives you your courage, you see. You don't just pick courage up from nowhere. The enemy gives it to you. You see your own boys dying all around you, your friends, and you get mad as hell. And all the time you hear the bullets and shells screaming and whining around you. Then there was one long scream that sounded as if it would never stop. It just kept coming straight at me. The shell 
landed about a meter away from me. It killed the boy next to me, and I felt a stinging on my cheek just for a tiny moment. I put my hand up and felt the blood running down cool on my face. They told me to put a bandage on it. It didn't hurt. It just burned for a while, but it made me so damn mad. That's when I got my courage. They told us to charge. We had a few tanks supporting us, but they couldn't touch those deep dugouts. In a charge, it's every man for himself. You see people falling all around you, but you still don't believe it can happen to you. The second time, though, you know death can happen to you, and your body is rigid the whole time, just waiting for the bullets to go thudding into you. You just go on running like hell. And a few meters in front is the officer. However fast you run, you can never catch up with him. That's why so many of them were killed. You find you've reached a dugout, and you throw in hand grenades and hose it with your Uzi, and that's it till the next one, and then the next one. All the time you begin to get more and more scared and more and more angry, end quote. The Jordanians fought like tigers, and the positions had to be stormed trench by trench, foot by bloody foot. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. The second Israeli attack was launched. The fighting was intense, involving house-to-house combat. Air resistance was so fierce the Israelis were forced to use tanks to blast them out point by bloody point. An Israeli eyewitness details the gore bath this way, quote, I fired again and somehow got a Jordanian soldier in the head. The back of the head exploded out the way a soda bottle explodes when you open it after shaking it up. There was so much blood, I vomited. As we grew angrier during the battle, we stopped being human beings. You want to kill and kill and kill. And we didn't touch the civilians, though. You just don't think of them the same way you do soldiers, end quote. Another soldier describes the incredible impact of his war for the old city, quote, Then we were sent into the old city. I remember when we rested, I began to think what I'd done, and I remembered at one point hearing that my own village had been shelled. So at the same time, I was scared, but I wanted to get at those bastards all the more for shelling my village, you know. We we went to the old city, and from then on, it was hand-to-hand and house-to-house, and that's just the worst thing in the world. In the desert, you know it's different. There are tanks, and there's planes, and the whole thing's at a longer range, but hand-to-hand fighting is just different. It's just terrible. I killed my first man there. Well, I... I suppose I must have killed before, but as far as I'm concerned, that was the first one because the others I didn't see up close like this. All of a sudden, I saw this man coming out of a doorway, this gigantic black guy. We looked at each other for half a second, and I knew that this was up to me, that personally I had to kill him or I would be killed. The whole thing must have lasted less than a second, but it's printed in my mind like in a slow-motion movie or something. I fired from the hip, and I can still see how the bullet splashed against the wall about a meter to his left, and I moved my Uzi slowly, slowly it seemed, until I hit him in the body. He slipped to his knees, and then he raised his head with, with his face terrible, twisted in pain and hatred. Yeah, such hate. I fired again and somehow got him in the head. There was so much blood. I vomited until the rest of the boys came up. A lot of them had been in the Sinai campaign, and it wasn't new to them. They gave me some water and said it's always like that the first time, not to worry or anything. I found I had fired my whole magazine at this guy. It's true what they said. You grow more and more callous to it as you go along. But at the same time, you get used to the gun, and you miss your target less often. You just get better at it. But I'll never forget that moment. It it just goes slowly through my mind all all the time. But as we went on fighting, I I began to care less. For the whole three days that we fought, I was sick and vomiting, but it meant less and less to me as time went on. All my friends were going down, and I grew madder and madder, just mad as hell. I wanted to kill the enemy. At the same time, I I didn't even want to see the enemy. I just... I just wanted to get a wound and get out of there. That's what, that's what we all really wanted, anything to get out. It was just hell. You just went from house to house, up the stairs, onto the roof, saying to yourself, one more house and I'll get out, and then another, and then another. And gradually you get fatalistic. As, as we grew angrier, we stopped being human beings anymore. You start out shouting, but by this time, after a few days of just heavy fighting, we were all just machines for killing. Everyone's face was set in a snarl, and there's this deep growl coming out of your belly you want to kill and kill you grow like an animal you know no worse than an animal things were happening i can't even tell you about them like one one time one of our ncos gave a drink of water to a prisoner the jordanian drank and 
Then he pulled a knife and slit the NCO's throat like a chicken. Just things like that. We killed the prisoner. You can't blame us for that, but you've got to understand what things like that did to us. We hated, hated so much. And all the time we were thinking what they would do to us and our families if they got us. And we were going along thinking, you're out for loot, are you? You'd rape my wife. You'd rape my sister, you son of a bitch. We didn't touch the civilians, though. I mean it. We didn't. You just don't think of civilians like you do the, the soldiers you're fighting. The soldiers, though, that's different. They don't seem like human beings to you. You don't think that they are people with families. You think all the time of your own family, but they are just insects to be killed until afterwards. Then you realize that they had families, too. End quote. Such was the carnage for the Battle of Jerusalem. On the afternoon of the 6th, the final high ground in the city was taken. Only the walled old city remained in Arab hands. On the afternoon of June 6th, Israel launched a coordinated armored pincer movement throughout the West Bank. The operation was carried out with what one author called mathematical precision. By the late morning of June 7th, after being constantly harassed by overwhelming and ceaseless Israeli air units, most Jordanian units ceased to function as fighting groups. All the major cities in the West Bank were captured. It was on that same day, June 7th, that Israeli paratroopers mopped up resistance in the walled old city, taking the venerable Temple Mount under constant sniper fire. After a few minutes, the firing stopped. The Wailing Wall, the Dome of the Rock, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque were in Jewish hands. Arab resistance in Jerusalem had ceased to exist. By the end of June 7th, the battle for the West Bank was over. The Jordanian king, Hussein, went to inspect the area for himself, and what he saw broke his heart. He later said, quote, I will never forget the hallucinating sight of that defeat. Roads clogged with trucks, jeeps, and all kinds of vehicles twisted, disemboweled, dented, still smoking, giving off that particular smell of metal and paint burned by exploding bombs, a stink that only powder can make. In the midst of this carnal house were men, in groups of thirty or two, wounded, exhausted. They were trying to clear a path under the monstrous coup de grace being dealt them by a horde of Israeli mirages screaming in a cloudless blue sky, searing the sun. End quote. In just four days, the Jordanians had lost over 15,000 troops dead, wounded, and missing as well as the entire air force and half their armor. Jordan's best agricultural land, its ancient holy sites, along with interminable tourist money that those sites provided, were gone. But the Israelis had paid for their conquest. The Jordanians had done more with their 15,000 men than Nasser had done with his hundreds of thousands. The Israelis fighting in the West Bank had taken 1,756 casualties, while the Israelis in Egypt had suffered 1,075 casualties. It was in the urban hand-to-hand -hand fighting that Israel had suffered her heaviest casualties. This is because the urban setting somewhat, but not completely, nullified the advantage of Israeli tactical air and armor superiority. The Arabs hugged the Jewish soldiers and thereby gave them more blood than any other Arab group. The lesson from this is to always seek to nullify your enemy's advantage. It strikes me, that Israelis' weak spot, along with most other well-developed nations, is their large urban centers. We saw the same thing in the Hungarian Revolution. When you hug a superior enemy, they cannot use their superior air and equipment advantage against you as effectively. The Soviets did the same thing to the Germans at Stalingrad. This shows that a well-coordinated attack against urban population centers, I'm talking about urban centers that are heavily laden with enemy civilians and world heritage sites, may be a terrorist or stateless organization's tactic in the future. Developed nations should be actively planning for this now. I'm sure they are. Let me just check on Justin Trudeau, Canada's Prime Minister. Okay, he appears to be praying at a sea temple in Imritzer. He looks good, too. I noticed that one of the top Google searches for Trudeau is Justin Trudeau. Cute. Have you ever seen pictures of Moshe Dayan? the Israeli military commander during the Six-Day War. He looks like a Jewish Odin. He actually has one eye. He's not winning any beauty contests, but he crushed his people's enemies. Oh, you Canadians, you Westerners, you consumers, if only we had a people that Googled what really mattered, then what ugly leaders and frightened enemies we might have. You're living in a plum target. 
We've seen it already on September 11th in New York and in London and in Paris. You're surrounded by an environment where your military might is mitigated, and most of you didn't even know it or think about it until I told you. What was it Nietzsche said? We have invented happiness, says the last man, and they blink. They have left the regions where it was hard to live, for one needs warmth. One still loves one's neighbor and rubs against him, for one needs warmth. They still work, for work is a form of entertainment, but one is careful, lest the entertainment be too harrowing. One no longer becomes poor or rich, both require too much exertion. Who still wants to rule? Who obey? Both require too much exertion. No shepherd in one herd. Everybody wants to be the same. Everybody is the same. Whoever feels different goes voluntarily into a madhouse. Formerly all the world was mad, says the most refined, and they blink and they blink. One has one's little pleasure for the day and one's little pleasure for the night, but one has a regard for one's health. We've invented happiness, says the last man, and they blink. And when you see the bright lights from the neon LED lit signs of the advertisements plastered across your city streets and the very heights of the skyscrapers in your cities, do you blink? Now, after the conquest of the Sinai Peninsula in the western half of the state of Jordan, Moshe Dayan cast his Odin-like glare towards the Syrian front in the north. It was time to pay back the Syrians for the artillery they had been sharing with the Jewish farmers near their border for the past few days, and Dayan shared. On June 9th, the Israeli leadership decided to go on the offensive. Their target was the Golan Heights, the Syrian high ground immediately next to the Israeli border. But there was a problem. The approaches to the heights were riddled with fortifications. The Israelis decided to attack at the most fortified sector for the simple reason that it was the shortest fortification in sheer length. I'm talking in distance. It was the right move. The attack was over terrain so angular and strewn with boulders, the Syrians believed an attack from that direction was impossible. We've seen this mistake played out in countless battles across the world. Anyways, accordingly, only 200 men were defending the front where the Israeli attack began. Elite Israeli troops from the Golani Brigade began the assault under the glare of the withering sun. A modern historian details what happened next. Quote, the Israelis set out to ascend the heights with bulldozers clearing the rocks, followed by the aging Sherman tanks and infantrymen bringing up the rear. The Syrians initially regarded the attack as a feint and failed to call up reinforcements. For two days, the Israeli Air Force had rained bombs and napalm on the ridges, dug in under tons of concrete. The Arabs held their ground under the paralyzing bombardments. The 200 Syrians who met the Israeli assault were in heavily fortified positions, though, and they inflicted heavy losses, among them the three most senior Israeli battle commanders. The buried Syrian tanks finally were knocked out of action by infantry squirming up the hill on their bellies, fast as stomach callous snakes, who dropped grenades into the minuscule openings of the Syrian dugouts. The first wave of Israeli infantry reached the barbed wire defenses, but many of the attackers were hammered down under withering machine gun fire. A few dozen troops of the second wave penetrated penetrated the wire and the minefield, and the third wave finally reached the Arab entrenchments themselves. The struggle was an inferno. After three hours of fighting, much of it with fists, knives, and rifle butts, the kind of house-to-house -house fighting Hollywood loves, where men wrestle with each other for three minutes and stare at one another in the eyes as they stab one another to death, the Syrians fought like wild cornered tigers who preferred death to captivity. But still, the Israeli assault continued, and eventually the positions were taken. Few Arabs survived. Even those who tried to surrender were cut down in the bloodlust of barbaric combat unleashed on the Golan Heights that day. End quote. The war in Syria was a war with no mercy. An Israeli combat veteran remembered, We fought more humanely on the West Bank, but when they got up into Syria, we hated the Syrians to the depths of our souls. We showed them no pity. War mixed with hate is a dangerous cocktail, and it was open bar during happy hour on the Syrian border that day. By darkness, the Israelis had two bridgeheads on the heights. On the morning of June 10th, the Israelis pressed on with the attack using their overwhelming air superiority, which is a familiar refrain in this show. They advanced on the administrative capital of the Golan region, a town of 80,000 souls. At the same time, the Jewish state launched another attack on key communication points in the area. Many of the towns the Israelis captured were abandoned. In fact, as the day wore on, it seemed the Syrians had abandoned the entire region. 
The Israelis started capturing Syrian ghost towns by just flying a few platoons of troops into a town and taking it over. Syrian morale ceased to exist. Men abandoned tanks worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sophisticated equipment was simply discarded. The officers often were the first to flee. In such conditions, much of the Syrian army evaporated like spilt beer on concrete in the south Georgia sun. By June 9th, all the belligerents, including Israel and Syria, informed the United Nations they had implemented a ceasefire. In reality, Israel was using the last few hours of June 9th to seize the entire Golan Heights in order to ensure that Syrian artillery could never terrorize northern Israel again. The Russians knew this was happening and threatened to implement, quote, other measures unless Israel stopped their advance. Finally, under pressure from Washington and conveniently, after the Israeli armored pincers had closed off the Golan region from Syria, Israel ceased to attack on all fronts. The date was June 10th, 6.30 p.m. All along the border with Israel, the battlefields were seeded with human carcasses, precisely the way suburbanites spread weed killer in their lawns. An eyewitness remembers the bodies everywhere like this. The full horror of war was really borne in on me when I saw the mounds of Egyptian dead. Enormous Horrible, great mounds of them, young and old, mixed up together. And then, I don't know how to explain it, there was some sort of inner compulsion to go along and see if perhaps there wasn't a picture to be found on one of them of a child or a wife or something like that. But if you found it, you would have left it immediately. You didn't want to touch it or to have anything to do with it at all, as if you personally weren't to blame for the death around you, as if to say, I didn't do this. I don't think there's anything out of the ordinary about this feeling. In fact, you felt that everything that had happened was somehow all their fault, like they had brought it on themselves, end quote. The Israeli performance in the Six-Day War was a masterstroke of human military capacity. The Israelis had defeated hundreds of thousands of highly equipped soldiers using their superior tactical and strategic skill. It was strategy and military intelligence, not numbers or attrition, that won the Six-Day War. There have been many summaries written about this conflict we've talked about today, but the best is by Howard Sacker, so I'll let him lead us out with this quote, quote, It was a catastrophic defeat for the Syrians. In 27 hours of battle, they had lost 2,500 killed and 5,000 wounded, a third of their tanks, half their artillery, while 80,000 of their soldiers and civilians had fled the Golan. Israel lost 117 killed and 324 wounded. The entire Golan Plateau was now in Israel's hands. The blockade of Israel's waterways was shattered. Israel lost 759 troops killed in the war and approximately 2,250 wounded. The nation's equipment losses were 40 planes and 80 tanks. The Arabs may have suffered up to 30,000 casualties, at least 450 planes and 1,000 tanks destroyed or captured, as well as vast quantities of military equipment. More importantly, there was a new geopolitical reality in the Middle East. Before the war... The main Israeli population centers were four minutes flying time away from the nearest Arab air bases. Much of Israel's narrow urban heartland had fallen within Arab artillery range. Now, after the war, the situation was completely reversed. It was Israeli planes and troops that were within close striking distance of Arab capitals and population centers. In the south, the Israelis had turned the Suez Canal into what one Israeli commander called the world's longest anti-tank ditch. In the east, Israel had pushed her borders all the way to the River Jordan and the Dead Sea. What accounted for this master stroke? The decisive factor was the human element. The literacy gap between the Arab and Israeli soldier was one factor. Leadership was another. Also, the lack of coordination between Arab allies produced the decisive Arab blunder of allowing the Israelis to fight three separate and consecutive wars against first Egypt, then Jordan, then Syria. Others have said the difference was due to the fact that Israel was facing real annihilation. They must have victory or they would have death. They chose victory. From June 13th to mid-November 1967, the United Nations endlessly debated the outcome of the Six-Day War. The Soviets pressed for Israel withdrawal from all conquered lands. On November 22nd, the United Nations passed Security Council Resolution 242. It stated, quote, The fulfillment of charter principles requires the establishment of a just and lasting peace in the Middle East, which should include the following principles. One, Withdrawal of Israeli armed forces from territories occupied in recent conflicts. 2. 
Termination of all claims of war and acceptance of the territorial integrity of all states in the region. 3. Guaranteeing freedom of navigation through international waterways in the area. 4. A special representative of this assembly will proceed to the Middle East to promote agreement and assist efforts to achieve peace. End quote. The world basically told Israel to exchange her ample conquests in exchange for pledges to honor Israeli territorial integrity and freedom of navigation on international waterways. She had been told the same thing 11 years before, and she had just finished fighting for her very existence a second time after the United Nations peacekeepers had fled the region. This was the second time Israel had conquered Sinai in the teeth of heavy, bloodthirsty resistance. Now she was being told to give it up again. Israel did not withdraw. She found herself suddenly in control of millions of new Arab subjects and her newly conquered 28,000 square miles of territory. Simply managing such a population of largely hostile natives would be a perennial challenge for Israel, a challenge that would help lead to another conflict just a few years later, the Yom Kippur War. But that's next month's podcast. You won't want to miss it. And for now, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you all good times and good health with good people. Bye.